ora koutou. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. I'm Sue Sanalea Tawa and for Wallace Chapman. Our panellists today, Ali Jones in Christchurch, Ed McKnight here in Auckland. Thanks so much for your feedback so far. A question which we will get to Kelsey Purcell at Auckland Council Silverdale Animal Shelter. They've got their dog matching event happening on Valentine's Day. And this question, uh, do you let the dog choose their owner? What protections are there for the dog against its owner? Very good points. In and around safety, which is key. Another uh, question regarding being a dog lover. Hello, panel. I have been wanting to adopt a rescue dog for years, but have been refused as I don't have a gate on a quite substantial property in a cul-de-sac. Too many restrictions for caring potential dog lovers. No name attached to that text. And this one's for you, Ed, or at least you've sparked this. I'm totally over people wanting lower interest rates, says John. I'm a pensioner with modest investments, and the rates today mean I can live above a subsistence level. There we go. Well, our first topic... This hour, the Auckland regional fuel tax will end in June. The Prime Minister made the announcement this afternoon. Of course, it's in line with Nationals campaigning to scrap the tax within its first 100 days. Prime Minister Luxon says the move will reduce the cost of living for New Zealanders, taking 11.5 cents off each litre of fuel. He acknowledged Auckland's infrastructure challenges, but went on to say the fuel tax hasn't been used to deliver them, instead going towards cycle lanes, red light cameras and speed bumps I think was the other one so where has the money from the fuel been going and what might happen without it to discuss Senior Lecturer Timothy Welsh at the University of Auckland specialising in transport. Kia ora Timothy Kia ora, thanks for having me Just to recap, when was Auckland's fuel tax first introduced? Yeah, the regional fuel tax was introduced in July of 2018 so it'll have been going for six years by the time it cancelled it's cancelled and it was planned to go for a full 10 years and how do you understand it's been spent uh yeah it, it hasn't been frivolously spent uh the bulk of the money has gone to two projects mostly the eastern busway which is really critical in getting people moving and out of cars and, and traffic flowing again and also new commuter trains um, for our rail system. And that's really the bulk of where the money is going. So a lot more than cycle lanes, not that I'm trying to reduce the value of cycle lanes, I don't have an opinion here uh, for or against, but a lot more than that, and especially emphasising public transport in Auckland. That's right. It's going to a lot of infrastructure that we'd have a hard time paying for any other way. So the fuel tax is going to end at the end of June. What does that mean for Auckland Council's revenue? Uh, it, it puts a huge hole uh, in our revenue stream in the way you can spend on transportation. Uh, it's giving up hundreds of millions of dollars over the next few years with no viable source of revenue to replace it. Let's bring The Economist in. Ed, you're here in Auckland. How does this all sound to you? Well, one question I have for you, Timothy, is I read in Radio New Zealand that up until May last year, only 327 million out of 700 had actually been uh, spent, or, or roughly half of it remained. Now, is that actually correct? Is that still true today? Well, there's a difference between what we've spent and what we've allocated. So there is a big chunk of the money still in the account, but a lot of that has already been allocated to projects that are not yet started. So uh, if we remove that money or use it for something else, those are projects that are going to have to go back to the drawing board and, and figure out a new source of revenue. How does this all sound to you, Ellie? 
Well, from the south in, in an area where, you know, in Christchurch we've got 25% of the population and we get 9% of, of the transport money, essentially. I, I'm not that particularly interested. I'm far more interested in what's happening down here. But my question for you, Timothy, is um, why, how, how, how do, I know politicians play games, but how do politicians think they can get away with simplifying and belittling the issue by talking about cycleways, red light cameras and speed bumps when from your independent position, it's clear that that's not true. How, how can politicians get away with, dare I say it, basically fibbing? <laughs> if I knew the answer to that, uh, <laughs> I'd probably be in a different job. I I don't know um, how we let people get away with kind of making off-the-cuff comments like that um, to, to simplify positions, uh, like removing a big source of revenue. Uh, but the fact is that just spending it on red light cameras and things like that is, is not where the money is going. Yeah. Just one other question I wanted to ask you too. In the South Island or in Christchurch especially, a number of us have been really pushing for rail. We've got an incredible infrastructure here running from the north of Canterbury into the south of Canterbury. The top and bottom are very big, fast-growing areas. But there's this big push from one organisation in particular, the Christchurch um, Greater Partnership, Greater Christchurch Partnership, for uh, light rail. And people seem to think that light rail's the answer, and it means digging up roads, it costs billions, it takes a very long time, it basically puts stuff back on the roads. What's your impression of what would work well and might be a quick... Do you think rail would be a quick win if we use the infrastructure we've already got down here in Canterbury? Uh, I mean, it certainly could be a win. I don't know that it's quick. Any infrastructure is time-consuming, and it takes a lot of time to to develop. Uh, But rail is a great way to get people out of cars, get traffic off of roads. Get the the freight off the roads? Yeah, get anything off the roads, really. Um, Rail is is one way to do it reliably um, and for the long term. So that's really what we need to do is look forward in our investments. Because you've got you the South Island in there. Oh, sorry, keep going, yeah, no, Ali. I was, I was, no, very quickly, because this is a real passion of mine. There is no doubt, surely, though, that using current infrastructure and, and not buying brand new um, uh, train um, carriages and things, but using the current infrastructure is going to be much, much quicker and cost far less than digging up the roads and putting new lines down for what they call or describe as light rail, surely. Well, light rail has been used under different names for you know, 50, 70 years um, as an efficient way to get people around cities. Uh, so it's the only way that we're going to free up traffic, uh, just, you know, with, with just expecting to build more roads or expand the capacity of the roads. Uh, that just induces more traffic. It's not a solution. Uh, the only way to do that is, is to develop other modes, and rail is really kind of one of the best opportunities to do that. Okay, thanks. Very good. Back to Auckland. Just to finish, Timothy, you've mentioned that funds have been allocated. With the source of this income ending on June the 30th, two things. What will happen to those projects that have some of their funding allocated, but the rest now not, what's the word, confirmed, assured? Yeah, we've been told that the Eastern Busway will continue to be funded. Uh, Any other project as part of the legislation, uh, we've been told any other project that's not related to the Eastern Busway or that's related to cycleways or bus lanes uh, will it be exclusively um, removed from from the any kind of funding. Uh, so we know that going forward, it'll likely be 
road resurfacing um, and finishing the eastern busway. And from there, we don't know where the funds will go. And just final, final question, what are your thoughts on other sources of income to support Auckland's infrastructure? What could they be? Well, the things that have been floated around is toll roads and congestion fees, and those certainly would be more progressive and be a better source of revenue, but those are years and years down the road. So again, we're really just leaving a huge gap. The only other alternative is to raise rates, and Auckland is already facing a fairly large rate increase this year. So we don't know where that kind of additional funding could really come from. Thank you very much for your time today, Timothy. My pleasure. Timothy Welch there, Senior Lecturer at University of Auckland, specialising in transport. You're listening to the panel on RNZ National, 17 minutes past four. Now to another policy in the 100-day plan, or at least another decision, more to the point. Government is removing a prison reduction target and will no longer fund cultural reports used in sentencing. Justice Minister Paul Goldsmith said the Section 27 cultural reports cost taxpayers more than $7 million in the last financial year and led to shorter sentences. Goldsman said the reports had become a cottage industry, costing taxpayers millions and doing nothing for the victims of crime. The government will introduce a bill in the next parliamentary session, which starts next week, to exclude the reports from legal aid. Meanwhile, Corrections Minister Mark Mitchell has said they should only, uh, there should only be fewer people in prison if there is a drop in serious offending. To discuss these changes... Mark Williams, the Chief Executive of the Howard League for Penal Reform, joins us now. Tēnā koe, Mike. Tēnā great. But I should correct you, I'm no longer the Chief Executive. I'm an Executive Director and I remain a spokesman for the Howard League. Thank you for that correction. Your line has just gone wonky just at the most inopportune moment. Are you, you're, I'm, I'm assuming you're not moving around and this is just technology playing with me. In the open air. That's better. Whatever you just did then, please keep doing that. Now, okay. so you are, you are, just to be clear, an executive director of the Howard League. That's Okay. Mm, let's see if this line holds. I hope so. The Howard League's focus is, is on lowering prison population, reducing reoffending, and helping people get back on their feet. How do these changes sound to the organisation as a result? Well, this is a, clearly a very backwards and um, I, when your um, producer rang me, I replayed the interview that Paul Goldsmith, the minister, had with Corin Down this morning. And um, I've actually met Paul Goldsmith. He's um, a highly intelligent man. I'd characterise him as an urban liberal. And he seemed quite uncomfortable. And he avoided the question about how much money this would save. Because, uh, I mean... $7 million is a trivial amount in the corrections budget, uh, which is billions. Um, and I don't think it will save money. Um, it, it, these reports did have the effect in some circumstances of reducing sentences. And given the fact that um, keeping a prisoner in a New Zealand jail now costs about $190,000 per year, um, that this will not save money. And I'm just wondering why um, there was no investigation done into this. The Minister of Finance is also the Minister of Social Investment, uh, which, of course, is Bill English's impact lab, which evaluates these things. Why wasn't that done? 
Um, but it will, I mean, as Corin pointed out this morning, it will mostly affect Maori. Tell us about the value of a cultural report. How does it work? Well, basically, the, the judge is briefed on the background of the uh, person about to be um, sentenced. And, um, you know, for things like uh, uh, well over, over half of Maori prisoners for example, have interfaced or been under the care of a rangatamariki. That's the sort of thing the judge needs to know, and you know, to, to reach an appropriate sentence. But there is what this means is there will be less information in front of the judge, so the sentencing will be less informed. It's not a good move. But the Prime Minister has, um, along with this announcement, said that people can still have others in court to speak on their behalf about them. Does that not do the same thing? No, not really. Um, These are professional reports um, that really do quite a bit of digging into it. But look, I don't think that, that this was particularly about justice. I think that if you see the two major announcements made by the government today, this was one of them, and the other one was the abolition of the Auckland fuel tax, um, which you just discussed on the panel, Um, I think it's an attempt by the government to grab the agenda back Mm -hmm. because the agenda has been made by uh, the Waitangi issue, and I think they're very wisely just trying to get on their front foot, and this is a way of doing it. Ali, have you got a question for Mike? Yeah, I have, but I, I agree with you, Mike, absolutely. I think that this would have been in the pipeline quite some time before Waitangi. They knew that they would have had an opportunity now to hit the ground running after Waitangi and get this back on track. Um, I am a bit torn on this. I do know what they're talking about when they talk about cottage industry. It's an unfortunate phrase. But you talk about Oranga Tamariki and how that is pertinent, and clearly it is. But surely you don't need a report for that. I mean, if, if a judge is actually given, you know, a background uh, presentation from someone, why does that not suffice? Well, it could do. Uh, but mostly these people are quite inarticulate and really don't have the social uh, nous to, to do these things which is why, in many cases, their lawyers, who are often court-appointed, seek these reports. And a lot of these people are quite isolated. Uh, They don't have anyone to stand up in court for them. But do we need a report? I mean, I totally understand that the court-appointed judge who's representing, um, you know, the defendant needs the information to be able to stand up and inform the judge. But I think it's degrees of. I mean, is, is there a middle area here, do you think? That was a question that Corin Dan asked um, Paul Goldsmith this morning, and he fudged on an answer, uh, as he did with the, um, the cost savings alleged. Um, yes, I think they probably would, but I don't think anyone looked at this mm. very, very much. We've and just... I think, you know, I think that if they'd referred to social investment, um, you can get a lot of information from what is called the IDI, the Integrated Data Infrastructure, about a person. Um, and that, that doesn't appear to have been considered. 
Ed, what do you think? Well, I think the question on a lot of New Zealanders' minds will be, whatever happened to do the crime, do the time? And I can understand why people would object to spending taxpayer money on, as you said, getting a professional report written that is there to get a reduced sentence for a criminal. So whatever happened uh, to do the crime, do the time? Well, you've still got that. I mean, nobody... I mean, the Labor government that's just gone suffers a lot of criticism, but they didn't reduce any sentences. I mean, people do the crime and do the time, as they always have. And there might be extenuating circumstances that need to be brought to the attention of the judge and the court. I mean, I don't, I don't agree with that, Ed. I think there could be incredibly important and pertinent extenuating circumstances. The crime may not necessarily, on its own, uh, you know, be, be as it seems or, or the background might be really important here. And I understand your point about that perhaps people who are in front of the judge might not be particularly articulate. understand that point. But isn't that the reason why we have lawyers coming in that the taxpayer pays for to defend these people? That's one of the reasons, yeah, absolutely. Just to finish there, um, Mike, also the removal of prison reduction rates. Now that, of course, flies in the face of the Howard League's whole focus, doesn't it? It does. Now, we were heading in the right direction. Uh, For the listeners, New Zealand has one of the highest rates of incarceration in the civilised world. Only the United States has had a big um, rate of incarceration. 52 to 3% of our male prisoners identify as Maori, and more than that, uh, women prisoners identify as Maori. Now, that started down, and for the first time uh, in early 2023, our rate of incarceration fell to Australia. I was really pleased about. But, you know, you, you hear talk these days as we need more prisoners. Well, as we need more prisoners like we need a hole in the head. As I told you, you know, there's $190,000 per person per annum. Definitely we should be trying to get that number. And but I wonder, I wonder too, though, Mike, whether, you know, this, that seven million bucks, I know it's a drop in the bucket when, it, when you look at the corrections budget as a whole, but, you know, that seven million bucks could go a reasonable way to actually help with some of the mental health and addiction services that we need that are hugely problematic in the reasons why people are in prison and are recidivist offenders, wouldn't you agree? I would absolutely agree with that. What I note is that the new extension on the Waikiri your line, I'm so sorry, I'm just going to have to jump in there, Mike, because your line is just playing up and preventing us from hearing what you have to say. But I think we've given this a good nudge this afternoon, and needless to say, there's going to be more discussion around it as time goes on. So looking forward to coming back to you at another time, Mike. We'll leave it there. Just had a text come in, unless they have uh, completely changed. Of course, now the machine's gone and moved on me. Someone was asking about probation officers' reports, and I can't ask Mike that question, so that's ever so slightly frustrating. Let's move on to our talkie. Australian workers will soon have the right to ignore calls or calls or, or emails outside of their paid hours. Put forward by the Green Senator and uh, received backing from Australia's government. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said in support, someone who's not being paid 24 hours a day shouldn't be penalised if they're not online and available 24 hours a day. 
it will not apply to on-call employees or managers. Well, France has passed a similar law back in 2017, and the right to disconnect also protects workers in Kenya and Portugal. So should New Zealanders have the right to disconnect? Well, personally, I'm relatively pro this change. I mean, I own a small business with about 90 employees and I would never call them up outside of work hours in order to ask them whatever questions about work. Just leave it to the the work day, I think. And I think it's really important that uh, business owners and employers, managers that we respect, uh, that when our staff go home, they're at home. They've got families to look after. They They don't need to worry about the board report that's slightly late. You know, I think we really need to allow people for work to be work and home to be home. And so I'm not totally opposed to this legislation. I do think, or my read of the situation is, they are chucking in a few little other things that I'm not totally pro within this legislation. But that core part that you bring up, Susanna, not opposed to that at all. Ali? I don't think it needs to be that prescriptive. I, I, you know, why do we need to legislate on this? I think there's a degree of common sense here. I also think that it depends on what kind of business or industry you're in. You know, as an elected member on a community board, a different again, a different again for a city councillor. Uh, like it or not, you are pretty much on call all the time, although you're not considered an on-call employee. Uh, So, you know, how on earth are you going to manage that? When you're working in PR as well, there may be an urgent issue that's raised. There may be an interview that you need to set up that you get a call through at 7 o'clock that night and you need to liaise with someone else. You can't fix this, um, you know, with with one brush. It's it's too prescriptive. You have to think about the individual uh, business. uh, And I think people should be left to make their own decisions about it. So just to... To wrap this topic, because I do like it, Ali, and I'll come to you too, Ed. Ali, for, for an employee, what's your advice if they've got a boss or a manager or someone from work who's wanting to communicate with them after hours? Look, it's so hard, isn't it? Because I'm reasonably sort of um, forthright and, and mature <laughs> and you? had some experience. <laughs> so, you know, I think about some young journos and, and what they put up with that I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't put up with now, for example. So, look, there are a lot of variables there. But my advice to anyone who, to whom that is happening is you need to have a discussion with them. You need to talk with them. And that might be being a little naive. Someone might feel their job is under threat. People need to be protected to, and feel confident confident to bring that up and discuss it. Look, maybe there needs to be some training within a business so that people know that it shouldn't be done if it can be avoided, but I just don't think we need to legislate on it. Ed, your advice for that employee? Well, I think these issues really come up when you've got a boss who is a bit forthright and maybe isn't quite open to listening to everyone. Otherwise, you could sort the issue out really easily. My piece of advice would be to take a support person with you if you feel like you can't have that discussion on your own and it is becoming a real issue. Thank you both.